Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your grace and goodness to us. We pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word. Would you help me to be clear, and would you help these to take care how they hear? And would you encourage and strengthen our hearts by grace? Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's been a privilege to be with you this weekend. Uh, great. Thanks for Rich and Cameron and the rest who hosted, hosted me. It's been a really, it's a joy to, to get down here and to, and to teach and preach. And so I've, I've been blessed, I've been encouraged, and uh, I hope you will be this morning. Um, there are places in the Old Testament where it, it takes work to find Jesus. Okay, There are places where it's hard to like, where's Christ in this text? Psalm 22 is not one of them. Uh, it is, if we're familiar with the Gospels, as we just read, we can't help but see numerous connections between this Psalm, 22, and the life, especially the death, of Jesus. It's, it's clearly a, uh, a messianic psalm, a psalm about the trials and triumph of the Davidic king. But even more than that, uh, the Psalm, 22, is a very human psalm. A very human prayer. And my aim this morning is to try to connect that human to the messianic, to bring them together. Because if you only see the human, you don't see enough. But if you only see the messianic, you don't see enough. So this morning, I'm going to walk through the psalm, try to show the valleys and the mountains in it, showing you the movement and the struggle. And as I do, I want you to listen to maybe what resonates for you. Listen, listen for the humanity of the psalm that resonates with your experience. Find yourself there. And then, after we've done that as a whole, then we'll come back and connect it to the life and work of Jesus and try to bring the human and the messianic together. That way we can all be encouraged by the word. So, human prayer. Where do we see the human prayer? So if you have it there in front of you, the big picture of the psalm is this. There's two big sections, uh, verses 1 to 22. And verses 23 to 31. Okay, the tone and feel of each section is very, very different. The first half is a lament. It's filled with loud cries, desperate requests. The second is triumphant praise, declarations of God's goodness, and triumph. And then within these sections, there's movement themselves. So in uh, the psalm opens with the cry, the classic cry that we're familiar with, my God my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's probably that's some of the most well-known words in the Bible. And you can hear his distress. You can hear it in the doubling of the my God. Right? My God, my God. There's a, there's a repetition. The, the obvious and felt sense of abandonment. And the confusion is, why is this happening? You see, we see similar questions like this in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, how long? Is that doubling again? Will you forget me forever? There the question is, how long will I be here? Here the question is, why? Why, God, David prays. And the question is pointed because he's my God. He's my God. If you're my God, God, you should be near. But you're not near, you're far. That's what he says. Why are you so far from saving me? You, you're my God, so you should be near. But you're not near, you're far. You're far from saving me from the words of my groaning. And David says, I have been groaning 
day and night. I've been groaning. I've been crying out. I've been calling upon you. I've been the persistent widow, knocking and knocking and knocking and pestering the judge for help, and nothing. No answer. No salvation. No rest. Now, that's, here's why this is a very human prayer, okay? Notice, notice how uh, David, as he's praying, basically argues with himself in the prayer. So he begins, I'm forsaken. My God has abandoned me. I've called to him, but he's not answered. And then he starts to go back and forth to remind himself of the past and, to, and then to feel the struggle of the present. So as you look through here, keep an eye on the yets and the buts. That's the argument. So look there, and you can, I'll flag them real quick. So, my God, my God, verse 1. Then verse 3, yet you are holy. Verse 6, but I'm a worm. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. See, the, see that back and forth, that argument with himself? So, um, I feel forsaken, he says. And then verse 3, yet you, your holiness, I remember your holiness. I remember your faithfulness to my fathers. And note the repeated word in verses 4 and 5. So verses 4 and 5, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So you hear it? They trusted you, they trusted you, they trusted you, and they were not disappointed. So I'm, I'm feeling forsaken, but you're holy, and, and our fathers got answers. They trusted you and were delivered. He reminds himself of God's faithfulness to other people, to his fathers in the past. But then, so that's, he's, I'm forsaken, but you're holy and you save them. And then here's the other side, but you're not saving me. I'm a worm. Verse 6, I'm not even a man. Everyone despises and mocks me. They wag their heads. And listen to what they say. Listen to what they say. He trusts in the Lord. This is what his enemies say. He trusts in the Lord like the fathers. Let's see if God delivers him like he did them. Let's see if God rescues him because God delights in him. And for the psalmist, that, God's absence makes that mockery land really hard because it's hard to argue with it. Let's see if God will save him. No. I'm not like my fathers. They trusted. They were delivered. I'm trusting. I'm not delivered. That's not my story. But then, again, so this is the back and forth, right? He answers himself. Okay, so yet, again, yet. This time, not based on other people's stories, not based on his father's, what God did for them in the past, but based on his own experience, right? He dresses God again. You took me from the womb. You made me trust you. There's the word again. At my mother's breast, at my most helpless and my most dependent, you were with me, you cared for me, and from the womb, you have been, notice, my God. There's that word again. And so I just want you to see the wrestling that he does in prayer. It's important. And we resonate with this. This is how we get whenever things are hard. We say, well, the Bible says this, but I'm not living that. But God told me this, and he was there then, but he's not doing it now. And we're just back and we're forth. And we're back and we're forth, wrestling with God in prayer. And it's important that it's a wrestling in prayer. It's not a wrestling apart from prayer. Because it's possible to do that too. 
Just churn in your anxiety. Churn in your worry. Churn in your pain. But this is a wrestling in prayer. This David here takes all of this turmoil to the God that he thinks is not listening to him. This is, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he's forsaken you, stop talking to him. No, that's not how David thinks. He's, it seems like he's forsaken me. I'm going to bring it all to it. It's important for us to remember this. Like in our darkness, in our struggles, the question you have to ask yourself is, do you wrestle in prayer or apart from prayer? Do you wrestle in prayer or apart from prayer? Do you simply worry and fret? Do you wrestle with doubts and despair or do you bring them to God? To the God who feels far from you, who hides his face from you. The late theologian John Webster once wrote, we never talk about God behind his back. It's a really profound truth there. Never talk about God behind his back. Jeez, we, we act like we do sometimes. But we never talk about God behind his back. David knows, I never talk about God behind his back. I'm not going to pretend to talk about God behind his back. I'm not even going to talk about God's felt absence as though he's not here. I'm going to talk to him about his absence. So he seeks the face of God in prayer in the midst of that felt absence. So summarize here. Notice the back and forth. I feel forsaken by you, God, but I know you're holy and my father's trusted you and you delivered them, but you haven't done that for me. I'm a worm. I'm mocked by others for trusting in you, but I've trusted in you since I was a little baby and you've cared for me as long as I have been alive. That's how he moves. And then he caps off this initial section with a request. And I, I call this the minor cry. It's there in verse 11. It's the minor cry because in a moment he's going to come back to it and it's going to be a major cry. So after that back and forth, back and forth, now the appeal, up to this point all he's done is declared stuff. This is, what's, this is what I'm feeling, this is what's true. Now he asks God for something. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. And then you hear the connection to the opening lament. Why are you so far from saving me? And then now... Don't be far from me because trouble is near to me. You're my God. If trouble is near, you should be near. But trouble is near and you're far. And I've got nowhere else to go. I've got nowhere else to go. And then he digs into those particulars. Then he dives in, verses 12 to 18, describe that trouble. What trouble is near to him. So let's, let's briefly summarize the trouble. He's surrounded by enemies. And opponents. So bulls of ba Bashan, Bashan, I don't know how you say it, bulls of Bashan, like roaring lions. These are likely elite opponents. These are influential people. Uh, Bashan is a site associated with idolatry. It's in the northern part of Israel. It's sometimes called the place of the serpent. It's a center of false worship. It's typically associated in the Bible with wealth and um, cruelty. And so when he says the bulls of Bashan are surrounding me, he means these are wealthy, prominent, prosperous people, and they are surrounding me and opposed to me. But not just bulls. Notice down below he says he's surrounded by dogs. Okay, so this is lo likely lower class. This is the riffraff. This is the mob. 
Maybe they're being led by the bulls, but he's got bulls and dogs surrounding him. So that's what trouble is near. What trouble is near? Who's, who's wagging their heads? Who's mocking him? Who's saying all this stuff? It's the bulls and the dogs. The elite and the rabble. What are, they, what are they doing? Well, they're threatening harm to him. Piercing his hands and his feet. It's a tough verse. The Hebrew's a little bit complicated. But at the very least, these enemies are attacking him and gloating and mocking and then helping themselves to his stuff. Right? They're dividing his garments. They're taking all of his stuff. So that's the external problem. That's the, tr- the trouble that's near is these enemies attacking, mocking, taking, stealing. And then that has an internal effect. Right? Internally, he's coming apart. He's just absolutely coming unglued. So in verse 14, he's poured out and poured out like water. His strength is gone. It's dried up like clay in the sun. His courage has failed him. He says, my heart melts like wax. It's just coming unglued. He's thirsty. His tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. He's, he's desperate. He's hungry. His bones are poking out of his skin. He's practically dead and surrounded by enemies who hate him. That's the trouble that is near. And in a circumstance like that, you would expect, my God, my God, you should be here too. And yet, my God, my God, you're not. And so in verses 19 to 21, that minor cry from verse 11, be not far, becomes a major cry. It gets amplified. Yahweh, don't be far off. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver me and save me. And again, he highlights all of those enemies, the power of the dog, the mouth of the lion, and the horns of the oxen. So deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. There's there's, there's elites and those rabble again. Save me. And this is an amplified version of what he had said in verse 11. So he's, he said it as he wrestled. God be not far. And then he, he amplifies the trouble, describes it, and then boom, it erupts in this cry of desperation. But notice something that happens in the middle of it. Look there in verse 21. Deliver me, verse 20, and save me, verse 21, are imperatives. They're urgent requests. Deliver me, save me. It's calling like this. But by the end of verse 21, it shifts. And it's a declaration. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You see what happened there? This is the turn in the psalm. Everything shifts there and it happens so fast it's and maybe that's how it happened in real life right in the midst of his cries for help God just breaks in deliver me God save me you've rescued me just like that deliver me save me you've rescued me he, from that point on everything's different the psalm is a totally different psalm from that turn now David all David wants to do now is tell everyone about what God's done for him. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Notice now who he's surrounded by. He was surrounded by dogs, bulls, oxen. Now, he's surrounded by brothers. There's brothers. There's an assembly. And he says, I've got a word for you, brothers, about my God. Do you fear the Lord? 
he says to the brothers, then you should praise him. Are you the seed of Jacob? You glorify him. Are you the offspring of Israel? Then stand in awe of him. Why? Why is that the message that David now has for his brothers? Well, because verse 24, because God has not despised the affliction of the afflicted. He's not despised it. He's not looked down on it. He's not neglected it. It felt like that for a while, but he didn't despise it. He saved me. He hasn't hidden his face permanently. That's what's remarkable about the text is from where it begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then by verse 24, he has not hidden his face from him. What do you mean he hasn't hidden his face? That's what you were crying about five minutes ago. You've hidden your face. You're far from me. And he says, he didn't. He didn't. Now I see. He was there all along. He was there. He didn't hide his face. He rescued me. He heard me and he answered me just like he did for my fathers. And then he speaks back to God again. Noting that he now hears, what he hears? He hears from God. My God, why, why are you far? I can't hear you. I don't know where you are. Now he hears God's commendation of him before his brothers. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Rather than the mockery of the crowds in that divine absence, when God was silent and all he could hear were the bulls, all he could hear were the dogs, mocking him, mocking him, mocking him. Now he says, God, I hear your well done. I hear your delight in me. I hear that expression, and I rejoice in it. And then David exalts in the future grace of God. The afflicted, which was him, will eat and be satisfied. The nations will remember and turn back to the Lord. All the families of the earth will worship him because he is the Lord of all. So high and low, rich and poor, Afflicted or not, all of them will gather to worship God. Future generations will serve him. And they will tell their stories to the children about how God did it. He did it. They'll say it. Generations yet unborn, God did it. God did it. He did it. He did it. Okay. That's the human prayer. That's the prayer that I suspect everyone in this room at some level can identify with. I felt like that. I felt, my God, what, where are you? Where are you? You say you're my God and you're not here. And it may not have been bulls and it may not have been dogs. It may have just been internal. It may have been, who knows, whatever your thing was. You felt God is not here and I'm crying to him and he's not here. And then, I hope he was. The answer came. And he delivered you. And you rejoiced. And, you, and then you wanted to tell everybody about it. Remember how we were praying? Remember how we were praying? And you just want to go say, I'm going to tell you what he did for me. I want to tell you what he did. It's a very human prayer. But this psalm is highlighted in two places in the New Testament. We just read them. The first is in the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus is on his way to the cross. So Matthew 27, after his arrest, he's brought before Pilate, and who's he questioned by? The elite, the powerful, the mighty, the Roman governor, Jewish leaders. Pilate then delivers him over to be crucified. And here's how Matthew 27, 32 to 46 reads. Which is right before what we read a minute ago. So as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man 
to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments. That's Psalm 22, verse 18. By casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads. Psalm 22, verse 7. They wag their heads at me. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. You know what that is? That's, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. There it is. So also, verse 41, the chief priests, with the scribes and the elders. Who's this? These are the bulls. The powerful and the mighty. Mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Oh, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. Then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now, if he desires him. There it is. Psalm 22, 8. For he said, I am the son of God. And then verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Who's that? The dogs. The rabble. So there it is. Jesus, that, the, when Matthew tells the story, he's just working through Psalm 22. Going, yep, there's the bulls. And there's the dogs. And they're saying the same thing that they said to David. Which is why when Jesus, in the very next verse, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that means that when we hear Jesus' quotation of Psalm 21, we ought to hear like layers to what he's doing there. Like on the one hand, this is the cry of dereliction, the cry of abandonment. Jesus is the son of David, the messianic king, the perfect man. And here in this moment, God does not deliver him. He doesn't. He turns him over to the dogs, to the lions, to the bulls of Bashan. Which in this case doesn't merely include the robbers and the soldiers and the priests and the scribes and the governor. But also includes the spiritual rulers and authorities who were also surrounding and mocking in this moment. We got it. So here it is. God has abandoned his Messiah, his Davidic king, the God-man, turned away from him as the powers of darkness unleash their worst. That's one layer of that quotation. But this is really important to get. When Jesus quotes that psalm, it's more than a cry of abandonment. It's also a prayer of faith. Jesus sees the wagging heads. He sees the divided garments. He sees the pierced hands and the pierced feet. He hears the mockery and the score. And he connects the dots because he planned the dots. Right on time. 
Jesus knows what psalm he's in. He knows what psalm he's in. He knows how this song ends. And so, that cry on the cross from Christ expresses both where he is in the story and his faith in where the story is going. There will be deliverance. There will be worship. All of the nations will return to the Lord. Generations will remember what God did in this moment. They will say, the Lord has done it. They will. And he knows that when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that's the messianic. So we had the human. We walked through David. And now we've connected it to Christ. Can we connect the two dots? Well, Hebrews 2 does precisely this for us. So this is where we want to land it. So we want to bring it home. In Hebrews 2, the biblical author is arguing Jesus fulfills Psalm 8. So he's, he's actually exegeting, he's unpacking Psalm 8. Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. He's been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And then in verse 10, he says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, the eternal Son of God, in bringing many sons to glory, that's the goal, he's going to bring us to glory, God should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is fitting, he says. The author of Hebrews says, it's fitting that if God is going to bring sons to glory, he's going to bring them through suffering, through the suffering of the founder of their salvation. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. They're, 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 they're in it together. They're a package deal. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. When did he call them brothers? When did the founder of our salvation say, brothers? And the answer is in Psalm 22. I will tell of your names to my brothers. That's that's Jesus in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, Father, with my brothers. And again, I will put my trust in him, quoting Isaiah. Behold, I and the children God has given me. And so then Hebrews draws this conclusion. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, so the children that God gave to Jesus, the brothers, their flesh and blood, Jesus, he himself, likewise partook of the same things. I've got to go where they go. I've got to do what they do. I've got to be what they are. In order that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, wagging his head, and deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Not a, this is, in, this, in Hebrews, this is why Jesus is greater than the angels. And therefore he had to be make, made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He's able to help those who are being tempted. So here's what Psalm 22, bringing it together, says to us in our humanity. I know that you felt forsaken by God. I know that God's absence has at times wrecked you. You've cried day and night. You've received no answer and no rest. God has felt far from you. And you know the stories of God's faithfulness in the past 
to other people. You know of what he did for that family. And you know what he did for the early church. And you know what he did for the Puritans. You know the stories. You may even have stories of your own. Personal stories of God upholding you in dependence and in need. But those stories right now, honestly, feel really, really thin. They feel really thin. Because right now you're surrounded by enemies. And they delight in your anguish. You're mocked because you trust in God. Maybe death is at your doorstep. Just right there. Death is knocking. And you feel very, very afraid. So your strength is dried up and your eyes are cried out and your courage and resolve have melted like wax and you're at the end of your rope and you're begging God, please just don't be far off. Like I can, I can deal with all this. Just If you were here, I could deal with this. You're not here. Don't be far. Come quickly. Deliver me. Save me. What does, at that moment, at that very human experience, Jesus says two things. Jesus says two things in that moment. I know and I will. I know, and I will. In fact, he says, this is what Hebrews says, I will because I know. I will save you because I know. I'm a man of sorrows. I was acquainted with grief. I get it. Jesus says, I will come to deliver you. I will deliver you from the fear of death, from lifelong slavery. I will destroy the devil who has the power of death. I will be the founder of your salvation. I will be your help. I will be your merciful, faithful high priest. I will bring you from the pit of despair to the heights of glory. And he says, I will help you and I can help you because I know. I know what it is to suffer. I became the founder of your salvation through suffering. I became your merciful and faithful high priest through suffering. I became like you in every respect. I walked the path that you're walking. I'm able to help you in your anguish because I have walked my own anguish. I know what it is to suffer. I know what it is to be forsaken by God, to be turned over to enemies, abandoned by your friends, surrounded by the wicked. I know what it is to be pierced, stretched, bones out of joint, tongue sticking out of the roof of my mouth, clothes divided by my enemies. I know, and because I know, I will. I will help you. I will deliver you. And that's a great encouragement to me. One of my favorite um, C.S. Lewis quotes from screw tape letters. And it, and it just emerges out of this. And you hear the echo of Christ in it, getting guess at me. But, but screw tape says, our cause, demonic cause, is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do the enemy's will. You hear it? Not my will. I don't want to do it. No longer desiring, but still intending, your will be done, to do the enemy's will. Looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished. Asks why he has been forsaken. There's Psalm 22. And still obeys. Right? 
In that moment, the, 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 the greatest threat the demonic causes, if at that moment, when I don't really want to do this, I'm tired, I'm done, but I'm going to anyway. I still intend to. I'm still going to obey. And I look around and I go, where? I don't see God anyway. He seems to have vanished. And he prays and says, God, I don't know why have you forsaken me. And says, I'm still going to obey. At that, point, at that moment, what can the bulls of Bashan do to you? What can the dogs do? What can the principalities and powers? What power at that moment do they have if you go in, in the face of God's felt absence? I'm just going to keep following my Lord. He walked it before me. He went all the way down with me. And even though I don't feel him, he's here. Jesus has a word for you this morning. And it's a word especially for those who are in the first half of Psalm 22. Who feel God's absence. Who long for his presence. And who wonder why he's forsaken you and why he's far from you and why he's hidden his face from you. And whose strength is dried up and whose courage is melted and who are on the verge of just quitting. This is what Jesus, the crucified Lord, says to you today. This is what Jesus says. He stands here and he says, do you fear the Lord? Then praise him. Are you a son of Jacob? Are you a daughter of Israel? Then stand in awe of your God and glorify him. Your God, your, your God, your God does not despise your affliction. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Rich and poor will eat together in worship. God will not hide his face forever. He will answer you. He will deliver you. Keep trusting him, just like your fathers did before you, like you've done in the past. And remember, this isn't just about you. Maybe it'll help you actually to get outside of your own head for a minute and realize all the nations will worship before him. Yes, this story reaches down to you in your personal, individual anguish. God is there. He's in your story. But this is an all-families-of-the-earth story. All of them will remember and turn to the Lord. From generation to generation, we will declare, the Lord has done it. Or, maybe we'll say, it is finished. That's the message of Psalm 22. Divine absence to divine action. Desperate cry to triumphant praise. From God has forsaken to the Lord has done it. Let's pray. Father, your word is a great comfort to us. You've given it, <clears throat> you've given it to comfort us in every affliction. And uh, Lord, we revel in the mercy of our great high priest who knows, he knows he knows, what it's, he knows when we're facing cancer. He knows when death is at the door. He knows when the family member dies. He knows, he knows, and because he knows, he will. So I pray, Lord, that you would do the work, that you help us persevere when it feels like you're absent, and that you would then bring us out in triumph and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.